Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Close, close counts here in the Horror Vanguard podcast, which we've relocated to sunny Twin Peaks in the Pacific Northwest of the United States of America. My name is Ash, one of your co-ghosts, joined, as always, by... Uh, it's me, I'm special investigative podcaster, the Litcrit Guy, otherwise known as John. How are we all doing today? Would that then make me the sheriff of Horror Vanguard? I, I'm not, I, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I, to, to be honest, if I think anyone is the sheriff of Horror Vanguard, it is absolutely you. I just, in my heart, I want to be the log lady of Horror Vanguard. I just, I just want to appear with my little log and have people ask awkward questions. Uh, no, I think, I think uh, it, you are absolutely the, the, the sheriff of our podcasting town. Fun, fun behind the scenes Ash fact. Uh, I once went to a three day long uh, release party for Twin Peaks The Return. And it was the only time I've ever done cosplay. And I did the log lady. Uh, you know, somehow this makes this makes complete sense to me. This makes complete sense to me. It was a lot of fun. I also I made believe, fish in the percolator cupcakes, uh, chocolate mocha cupcakes with little Swedish fish on top. They sound amazing. To be honest, I think Swedish fish are one of the most cursed foods that have ever been created, but the rest of the cupcake was really good. <laughs> um, well, I think we've probably spoiled the surprise for. Yeah, can for you listeners. guess what we're talking about? This is this is the beginning of a brand new horror vanguard retrospective. We 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 struggled through the torture traps that make up the Saw franchise. We are eternally condemned to be citizens of <laughs> Raccoon City for as long as we live, dealing with the Resident Evil franchise. So we we decided in our infinite wisdom to give ourselves a break. And you know, we got in the we got in the rental car. We decided to drive up to the Pacific Northwest and talk about uh, a strange and terrifying event. Um, we are gonna we are talking about the entire first season of Twin Peaks. It's it's going to be amazing. We're breaking this up into a season model. So this is season one of our Twin Peaks retrospective, where we'll be covering season one. Uh, and then we're going to do the rest of the seasons, and then we're also going to hit you with uh, both movies, Missing Pieces and Firewalk With Me. We are both extremely excited because for whatever you can say about Twin Peaks, at least we're not talking about Resident Evil again. Uh, I'm I'm so delighted. I have a large cup of extremely good coffee next to me. Let's get Beautiful. into this. Let's get into this. So... The very first thing that I want to bring up when discussing Twin Peaks is Twin Peaks criticism. We have an interesting dilemma in front of us, and that's that David Lynch is quite possibly the poster boy for art-resisting interpretation and artists resisting any possible interpretation of their work. He's so beautifully opaque with what he does. And I think that that, in turn, should cause us to reflect as, as the critics of art, right? And right off the bat in Twin Peaks, there's a sequence for me that makes me reflect on art criticism, right? 
in in the opening introduction, right when we're listening to the to the beautiful soundtrack to to the show, one of the first sequence series of sequences that we see are trees being milled, right? Saw blades being sharpened, trees being cut and processed. And like, what what is the function of the saw, right? It's to cut down the woods and process them. Twin Peaks, the show, the town, it is those very woods. We as critics mustn't become the saw. Twin Peaks should never become solved or processed. It's not a woodland to be managed and clear-cut and subdued. It is to be wild and alive. We are explorers, cohabitants, and humbled passers-by. Nothing more. To become more is to defile both those woods and the thing that we claim to be. And that's kind of how I want to approach this. I think there is, I think there's this interest in seeing Lynch as someone who is either, either completely solvable or completely surreal and people go, oh, you can't explain what's going mm-hmm. on. And neither of those, I think, is entirely no. a- is is accurate in the slightest. Um, what's what's impressive to me actually is just how deliberate everything in Twin Peaks is. I I completely agree that the aim of providing a solution to to a riddle is a kind of um, vivisection uh, of of a piece of art, and that's really not the point. That's really not the. That's never what we've tried to do. Uh, let us let us then become members of the community. Let us let us join in because <laughs> this is this is what the show is about, right? The show has a has a kind of central MacGuffin plot. In many ways, it's a very traditionally structured kind of television show, and what kind of television show it is is super interesting. Um, but yeah, we're not here. We are not here to solve Twin Peaks for you. We are not here to give anything approaching to the the singular definitive um, reading of the text. What we are here to do is go on a journey. We, we, are, we are here to have an experience. And I think that's what watching the show itself is like. Oh, absolutely. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. So let's let, let's talk about some formal epi- uh, elements of the pilot, right? We're, we're we're talking about the very first episode of Twin Peaks, the pilot, Northwest Passage. Uh, let's kind of let's kind of like pick apart the formal nature of what we're dealing with. Absolutely, absolutely. Why why not begin with the beginning? How this show came about? Because on on paper, at least, it's a kind of weird thing, right? You have you have this. Uh, this is actually a really important point. A lot of people talk about this as a David Lynch show, and of course, Lynch yes. is an, is a super important influence. But this is not solely David Lynch's work uh, in terms of its development. Uh, there's also uh, Mark Frost in the eighties. Mark Frost worked uh, as a writer for I think two or three years on Hill Street Blues, which was a very very successful police procedural. David Lynch is commissioned or, or hired by Warner Brothers to direct something about the life of Marilyn Monroe. These two people meet. They decide they're going to make a TV show. Um, so I think it's super important to go, like, just just as I'm, I'm very, very skeptical about auteur, auteur theory in film studies. And I think TV as a much more mediated, capitalized product is even more resistant to being thought of as a kind of the product of a singular auteur. 
Like Lynch has a distinctive style, right? But it's not just the David Lynch project. David Lynch doesn't even direct all of the episodes. No, yeah, yeah. And I think this really highlights the communal nature of making televisual content. You know, because this is this is a Lynch Frost production, right? It's both of both of their creative inputs going into a lot of this. But like, just try and imagine Twin Peaks with anyone but Kyle McLaughlin as Dale Cooper. Yeah, and and Dale Cooper is quite clearly, and Lynch admits this is quite clearly based on David Lynch. And, mm-hmm. and Lynch Lynch even says, uh, like, McGl- uh, Cooper says a lot of the things that he would say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the the acting in this is just like. Everybody is is right where they need to be. It is just so good. So, like, it, this isn't just this isn't just the David Lynch thing, but David Lynch is the name, right? This is what everybody talks about. So maybe who who is David Lynch? Who who is David Lynch? Who are we talking about here? That is that that I believe is the question of our time. I think the person who figures that out wins some kind of cosmic gift. Do you want to give us a a one hundred and one of Lynch's biography? Yeah, so David Lynch is a American filmmaker. Started out as a painter. I I think I I don't I don't I don't kind of agree with Paul, the the famous film critic Pauline Kael a lot. But Pauline Kael called David Lynch the first populist surrealist, which no I think lie it, detected. Which I think is completely accurate. So he is very influenced by kind of European art traditions. He's very into transcendental meditation. He makes weird movies. That I guess that's that's a kind of <laughs> the better way, the best way into Lynch that I can think of. Uh, are you you would you consider yourself a Lynch fan? Have you kind of seen Lynch's movies? I, I have seen many of them, not all of them. Uh, one of one of my upcoming products products projects is a complete rewatch of everything that I can get my hands on that David Lynch has ever done, commercials included. Mm-hmm. Um, prolific commercial filmer, commercial director. Also, by the way, interesting David Lynch point, which I think elucidates something that I find interesting about David Lynch's filmography. And that's for as weird and surreal as David Lynch's work gets, it's also ultra mundane. Like often this kind of like Twin Peaks is just a police procedural but it's a police procedural that is a vehicle for a lot of very strange thought. Ooh, and the same that, the that's, same that's sentiment. That's very that's very interesting because I would disagree about what Twin Peaks is. Ooh, ooh, ooh! I'm gonna like where this is going. But this, just to just to say that a lot of David Lynch's work, uh, Eraserhead, is a very mundane story about a guy down on his luck, struggling with family life, attempting to put it together with a bunch of incredibly weird stuff happening around that and in that. Um, yes, a super, super interested in interiority, I think. Mm-hmm. Very interested in the makeup of the psyche. And, and like I say, a deep appreciation for the European art tradition. A lot of his stuff gets into very psychosexual territory. Blue Velvet may be the most famous example of it. Um, mm-hmm. But, but, Someone who is very interesting, even though he's very interested in interesting in a kind of psychological and kind of like interior sense, rather than someone who's interested in spectacle. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, the spectacle is very judiciously used as kind of like grand over the top moments are very intentionally crafted in Twin Peaks. Do you have a favorite Lynch movie? I always struggle with favorites. 
the the thing that I rewatch the most out of everything that David Lynch has made is Twin Peaks. Um, maybe the thing that I watch most frequently is his his daily YouTube announcements. Uh, yes, the David Lynch weather report. Beautiful, beautiful, R- refreshing, like a like a cool breeze. How about you? Um, I watch those a lot as well. I think out of the films, I really like The Elephant Man, um, mm, which yep. I think I think is beautiful. I think A Razorhead is is obviously incredible, but I think classic. I think The Elephant Man is a little more developed. I have a deep fondness for his um, adaptation of Dune. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I ge- oh yeah, I yeah. genuinely genuinely do wish that um, he had gotten the chance to direct the um, Return of the Jedi. I think that would have been incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a far superior film. Um, I think Lost Highway is great uh, and and super weird uh, in the best kind of way. Um, And and how can you not how can you not love Wild at Heart, which has got a very young Lord Dern in it? Um, so you know, I'm I I I would count myself a fan. That's good. That's good. It's good. Good starting place for us. So a, a moment ago, you 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 said you had some some perhaps disagreements, some thoughts about the genre of the show that we're watching. What do you think about that? Uh, well, you you said that that is a police procedural, um, which I think is is in the first in the pilot in the first episode probably true, but I think overall maybe not, um, because what I think it is is I think this is David Lynch making making a soap opera. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So. It, Obviously, it has its central, its central kind of plot MacGuffin of who killed Laura Palmer, um, which, but but really, the show unfolds as it's it's about personal relationships. It's about the kind of drama of people's mundane life, right? It, it's mm-hmm. it's which is classic soap opera territory. You know, who's sleeping with who? Who's having an affair? Who's falling in love? Like this is the 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 generic language of kind of melodrama. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that one hundred percent stands. But I also think it is um, probably one of the first major shows on American television that was so interested in this idea of generic hybridity. It, it definitely wants to be and is several genres. It's incredibly Derridian. It's participating all over the place in. Police procedurals, horror, mystery. There's, there's some noir elements to this, and of course, uh, the the melodrama. Yeah, and I think that's a cool thing. It's a cool thing that you can. There's a lot of code switching that goes on, and and I think what really helps this is something that people really underplay about David Lynch as a writer and and filmmaker, which is that he has a very kind of weird sense of humor. Twin Peaks is incredibly funny, yeah. It's really funny. I, everyone goes, oh, it's so weird. You won't know what's going on. It's like, eh, don't get hung up on that. It's really funny in places. Mm-hmm. What do you What do you think about the score then? What do you think about the the score and the soundtrack to Twin Peaks? Because I, like, Angela Badalamenti and Julie Cruz are just phenomenal. Falling is such a good song. Like, what can you, what can you say? What can you say? Like... Uh, 
I, I, I think it's a really good habit of ours that we try not to get into like just kind of gushing or being like doing hagiography of cultural texts. But mm-hmm. it's it's the high point of TV music, like e- easily the high point of TV music. Yeah, and I, I mean, like starting for the fact that the first thing you hear, the opening theme is Julie Cruz's falling. Mm-hmm. It, I think it is so important for the text of what Twin Peaks is. You know, the, 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 this haunting, like it's, it's it's like diaphanous song about falling in love and like opening into this murder mystery and this intrigue and other dimensions and like, oh, it's so good. And it's like the music is not is not kind of coded to be generically like a police procedural, right? It's no, it's it's very lush. It's kind of romantic. It's it's melodramatic there's you know a, a lot of the a lot of the men in the film are scored with what um uh gets called cool jazz you know a lot of like finger snapping and like you know it's sort of like neo-noir west side story uh which is amazing but it is it's directly it's tuned into a very kind of specific emotional frequency you know oh yeah 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 definitely so so how do you think then that this informs how the show is doing exposition um, I, uh, again, I don't, I don't like to just kind of gush, but I think it's a, it's, it's a phenomenally well-written show because it's, all of it is so deliberate and the weirdness is kind of part of it. But I think it, the pilot, for example, it manages to set up the relationships and the main characters of the town before Dale Cooper even arrives and does it in such a way that you never get much of like the sheriff going, oh, by the way, this is that person, this is that person um, mm-hmm. to us as the audience, right? There, there, there is that a little bit where there's the town meeting, but generally by the time everything sets, like you kind of know every, who everybody is and what the general state of the initial relationships are, right? And I think that's a really cool trick to pull off. Yeah, there there's several moments throughout the first season where we do these kind of like introductory recaps of characters. You know, when when Coop is is using a, a dream derived uh, method of divination to to locate prime suspects. You know, we get a quick recap of a bunch of characters, and again, yeah, the the town hall meeting. But those th- those are done so naturally, so diegetically, that we don't get a lot of the kind of ham-fisted introductions and like you know like soap operas are really guilty of this too like reintroducing the same character over and over again because if you haven't been caught up they need to catch you up all the time yeah yeah exactly and twin peaks just it feels like so much more of an organic way of a narrative unraveling yeah i mean this is what makes me say it's a great it's a great soap opera you know the whole the whole point of a soap opera is in its mundanity right you're not there you're not there for like fantasy escapism you're there for this idea of like you could have there's there's a kind of sociology of of melodrama that's happening and i think lynch uh, um like twin peaks uh, the entire show is very good at driving through a sort of a kind of slightly weird obtuse take on on the sociology of melodramatic relationships <laughs> 
Oh, we're gonna have so much fun in the discourse zone, aren't we? Oh yeah, absolutely. Let's let, but, let's do it. Let's before, do it. Before 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 we go there, though, the last thing we need to talk about in formalism is uh, the pilot is not just a pilot; it's also a made-for-TV movie. There's an international cut of the pilot that they produced, shot, and produced and finished in case nobody wanted to pick up the show as a show so that they didn't waste their effort and they could just kick it out the door as a film. Yeah. Adds about 20, 23 minutes of additional footage to make a kind of TV movie length. Um, and I, I got to say, I am so happy that we got the show and not this kind of weird little movie that, that it could have become because the, the, the movie it, within the full length of it, it's, it's the first 40 minutes of the pilot. And then it's like a bunch of additional footage and it's so it's a mess it's a mess of a resolution it's so sudden it kind of jams in all of these um all of the kind of like metaphysical elements that come to define twin peaks in the in the following episodes um and it's just it becomes this unwieldy little thing so very glad we got the show and not the movie yeah and and the show manages to set up those metaphysical elements really well right donna has the no, it's uh, Laura's mother, Sarah, has the nightmare right at the end, you know, of pulling the locket out of the earth. And it's like, hang on a second. And that's, I, I love it. It's such a good cliffhanger for a pilot where you suddenly go, wait, did she, hang on, what? <laughs> mm. uh, and that's your kind of first indication that things have the potential to get really weird in a kind of fun, sustained way. But yeah, I... actually. Uh, do, do you know what is the real first indication that things have the potential to get weird in a fun and sustained way? It's signing up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash horror vanguard. As, as segues go, I think that one's pretty good. That one's, that one's pretty solid. So, sorry I steamrolled you there. I just saw like, I was like, oh, there it is. There's the moment. Let's take it. Longtime listeners will know that we have a recurring problem with knowing how to you know, do self-promotion. But if you like the show, you'd like to see more of it and you'd like to help us keep going, please do check out the Patreon. All right, so let's let's get in the discourse zone and let's start by talking about the thing that we got to get out of the way first and the thing that we'll be revisiting throughout this series um, and this season and future seasons is Twin Peaks Copaganda. Ooh. <laughs> Discuss. This, this, fe- this, feels like, this feels like one of those kind of hot takes that somebody puts on Twitter and they become the main character for the day where they go, oh, mm-hmm. I see you're all standing Twin Peaks, basic propaganda, uh, copaganda. Um, but it's, this is actually a super interesting question, right? Um, Harry, Harry in the especially in the pilot in the first episode proper, comes off as very competent, very well-respected, very kind of integrated into the community. Coop is this, um, you know slightly weird outside figure it, it it's very easy to 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 it would be very easy to make a straightforward argument that you go oh this is just another example of american propaganda um and i i think that's only very partly true what do you think this is something i'm going to talk a lot more about when we get to episode two or zen or the skill to catch a killer yes um, I, I think that episode is the one where, like, the discourse flows uh, about propaganda in that one. Um, I, I would agree with you very broadly that there there are elements of propaganda in this show. It's it's something that is present. I it, it, however, unlike a show like 
like like any any generic standard issue police procedural like this show kind of strains the boundaries of propaganda and gives us the freedom to call a lot of things into question that kind of I think less less thoughtful, less critical propaganda pieces don't allow. This is this is exactly what I mean, which is like you can go, oh, it's propaganda because it has it has law enforcement characters who are um, sympathetically presented, but also it kind of shatters any sort of straightforward, realist or positivist epistemological frame within which law enforcement operates. Like C- Cooper mm-hmm. solves crimes with dreams and <laughs> like with these weird. We'll we'll get into that. Like yeah. <laughs> with these weird, with these weird kind of leaps of logic and and so it's like this idea of it being like, oh, you just need to have like the very smartest people, and they're gonna be the ones that keep you safe. Doesn't doesn't exactly work. A lot about the show sort of cuts against the grain of what a normative police procedural would be um so obviously you could you can go that there is a degree to to which that's true because that's the way that a lot of contemporary culture just talks about the police but the show complicates it in very important ways absolutely uh so how do we how do we feel about coffee besides it is perhaps the single greatest thing on this rock we call earth uh well i mean it's the motif right so what what do we i don't know it's a stimulant it's the world's most widely taken drug um it's the the addiction which is most socially excused and even condoned in certain ways um what do you think about this I think this is going to get really interesting because uh, our conversations on coffee are going to be continuing in the following episodes. Um, but but to, to to set the stage, like coffee and the show are thematically and fundamentally entwined. Coffee is a thematic vehicle through which we can analyze the motifs and themes and in- scenes and incidents of Twin Peaks. Like coffee itself is a way of knowing intra the text of twin peaks it's it's a lens through it's a murky brown lens through which we can see the world of of dale cooper and friends i mean it's uh coffee is is a huge imported product it's often grown under hugely exploitative conditions it is a kind of social signifier it's a way in which the working day is often regulated and controlled you know, you, you can't get through work without your morning coffee. There's a whole thing about Cooper switching to decaf. Because, uh, you know, Andy's drinking way too much caffeinated coffee. That's what Lucy tells us. So, like, there are all of these, there are all of these, there, there's a kind of enormously complex semiotics of coffee. Like, what, what it means and what it represents. There's And, of course, coffee and donuts being the culinary semiotics of American law enforcement completely as well, right? There's... There's mm-hmm. so many kind of layers to this. So I think you're completely right that it is absolutely a way a way into the show, into the into the show's epistemological commitments. I could not agree anymore with that. It, it, one thing that I wanted to mention is there's this uh so, so we get this really interesting scene. So we got Andy, which is one of the deputies in this little community, and he's he's kind of the oaf. 
of the group. He's a little bit comic relief, but also very empathetic. Um, and we have we have the scene where you know like the the police come see and find Laura Palmer's body on the beach, and Andy is kind of overcome with the horror and emotion of the moment, and he just just starts uncontrollably bawling, just sobbing. And uh, the, the the sheriff uh, naturally in the, to to kind of like a patriarchal masculinity is like, oh, are we going to do this again, just like last time? Like, stop your crying now, like. It's it's very much like, but, and I think that 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 scene of crying where we're watching Andy cry, we're watching the sheriff kind of scold him for that. There, there's it's easy to fall into a reading of being like, oh, it's recapitulating to patriarchal views about men and their emotions. Men shouldn't cry. Andy shouldn't be crying. He's the laughing stock. But I think that by making Andy this this oaf, he's kind of a buffoon. Uh, we have a natural sympathy for him and, and that that builds an alliance. It's possible to watch Twin Peaks and feel nothing for the sheriff because he's a character you just don't connect with. You know, he's very plain. But Andy, like, we've all been the laughing stock of a joke. We've all been the oaf at the office one time or another. Like, you will connect with him. And, and to connect with him and to also know that you're connecting to, like, a man who just openly cries a lot... I think like it's very subtly and very slightly opening this door right to like the kind of like blasted landscape that is the emotions that men are allowed to have access to under patriarchy and crying in public as as one of those and crying with your coworkers especially in a job so traditionally masculine. Well that's that's the joke of it right? You have a you have what's set up as like the kind of stereotypical cliched police procedural and it's undercut by what seems to be hugely sincere emotion. Like, yeah. uh, and it, at first you go, oh, it's kind of funny. He's so silly. And then you go, actually, I really, you really feel for this guy who's clearly in a line of work he's not, he's not suited for. There's the, there's the horrible moment where he calls in after finding the, 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 the train car, uh, the torture mm-hmm. slash murder site, and is in pieces about this. Um, and it, it, you're completely right that it cuts through the kind of presuppositions that the audience has about, oh, how are police supposed to respond to to these acts of violence? And I think this, and I think I think, oh, I think on, this brings on. up a kind of really important question, right? Um, and maybe something that we should get out of the way first in the very first episode, which is um, Laura Palmer is the 17 year old homecoming queen of this small town. You know, the the classic beautiful blonde-haired, blue-eyed young American woman. Um, and there's there's that obviously infamous quote from Edgar Allan Poe that the the death of a beautiful woman is unquestionably the most poetical topic in the world. Um, and I guess this this kind of how 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 do we approach this from a feminist point of view? You know, the, the police procedural is is all about often it's way too often about this kind of misogynistic depictal of the depiction of the torture and murder of women, right? Often young women, there's often a great mm-hmm. deal of sexual violence involved. Um you know, is this just another one of those things, or can we or are there ways of talking about this which sort of uh think about things in a new way? 
Yeah. And I think that's that I think is a really good guiding question for the series more broadly, because like we could look at Andy's frequent emotional breakdowns and see him as defective or damaged or somehow less in massive scare quotes here, less of a man than the sheriff who's able to weather and withstand these things with a, you know, a, a chiseled jawline kind of emotional efficiency. However, we can also invert this. We, we can see Andy is the one who isn't broken, who isn't damaged, who has access to a rich palette of emotions that he can freely share. And then we can look at Cooper and the sheriff and the other men in this movie as the ones who have been in some way damaged or broken or become been made to become somehow incomplete, having have now have less access to different ways of feeling. So it, I think like the, the, how the series approaches gender as a whole and, oh, the David Duchovny uh, episodes are coming our way. Oh, yeah. uh, there's a lot going on in Twin Peaks. And because of the nature of Lynchian cinema and what Lynch and Frost accomplished with the show, it doesn't it doesn't ever reduce. Right. You can't boil this down to like a clear homogenate. There's always going to be some friction and some bite in the text that is really useful because that opens wider discussions rather than committing to like one ontological position. This is exactly what I was going to say. And I, I actually think there's a very strong argument to make for Lynch as a as in lots of ways, a, a profoundly feminist um, filmmaker. Um, I, I think you can make that argument about Twin Peaks. Um, he's he is it's really good at writing at the kind of psychological multitude within within the individual subject particularly in his female characters and you know i think you can go that yeah some of the visual language in this is a bit dated and it's now a little bit cliched you know the constant slow-mo video of laura on the hike uh with lots of like close-ups of her and you could you can absolutely do that but i also think there is um, there's a lot of super suggestive, super really interesting perspectives about about women generally in this show um, that you don't get a lot in other more kind of basic or straightforward murder mysteries. Like, for example, the thing that kind of popped into my head watching the pilot again is like, compare this, compare this to something like Frank Miller's Sin City, which is another sort of like weird mm-hmm. surrealist neo-noir and Sin City is so much more reductive and so much more kind of like leaning in to the very obvious cliches and sort of sexual fantasy of the femme fatale. Whereas this is so much more interesting in lots of very complicated ways. And yeah, we'll, uh, there will be lots of discourse to get into. But, um, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm firmly on the side of Lynch being a... Uh, a really interesting filmmaker and in some ways a, a deeply feminist one. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think this kind of like, this is, this is a great place to just, to just let the curtain slowly fall on this episode. Do do you have any final thoughts before we exit the Northwest passage and uh, continue our travels into the rest of the series? Uh, no, I think you're completely right. I think it's a great place to stop. Um, Let's let's ready ourselves to get to know the rest of the inhabitants of Twin Peaks. We hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.